Thank you. Can we go to um, Mark chapter 9? And I'm going to read from uh, verse 14. Mark chapter 9, verse 14. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. And when the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion and he fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for the one who believes. And immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And the spirit shrieked and convulsed him violently and came out. And the boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up and after Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? And he replied, this kind come out only by prayer. So today, talking about Jesus coming down the mountain, Jesus has just come down the mountain, which we call the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, and on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus had been with three of his disciples who got a kind of a pre-look, if you like, at the glory that will be Jesus in the future as he's transfigured before them. And then Jesus, uh, having had that mountaintop experience with the disciples, uh, comes down the mountain and faces immediately a situation of great need. Uh, there's a boy who can't speak and he seems to be possessed by a kind of suicidal spirits and he, he's often, in, often tried to kill himself or injure himself. And so the father is desperate and pleads with Jesus for help with regard to his son. The first thing I want to pick up from this passage here this morning is something that I think probably is quite often overlooked, but it's to talk about being overwhelmed with wonder. It comes in verse 15. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to meet him. Now, I don't watch a great deal of television sport, to be honest. I, uh, I very rarely watch a football match. I only tend to watch it if we are doing well in the Euros or the World Cup. So that means I don't watch very many matches at all over the course of the years. I did like to watch Test Cricket, but that seems to have disappeared largely from the main television channels. And the only tennis I watch is if Andy Murray is playing, but that has shortened my life uh, because all his matches are so tense that even when he's winning, he looks as though he's about to lose. And so you kind of live with this terrible tension, uh, which I'm sure has actually shortened my life. But uh, there is one exception to all this, and that's the Olympics. Now, when the Olympics comes on every four or this time five years, 
then I'm riveted to the Olympics. And I have so many memories that I could bore you with. Uh, but uh, I remember decades ago uh, seeing for the first time uh, the 400-metre world record broken in terms of taking it underneath the 45-second mark, which was a, a huge thing at the time. And then on these latest Olympics, I switched on the television one day, and a couple of minutes later, this lady from Venezuela looked as though she's loping down uh, the track, and she kind of casually jumps and breaks the world triple jump record. And it was as kind of unexpected uh, as that. And I remember Seb Coe and Mo Farah, and I've been enthralled by Jason and Laura Kenny. Uh, I'm a, a great fan of Jessica Ennis, who was, uh, in fact, uh, one of the great athletes uh, in the Olympics that were held over here some years ago. In fact, I'm such a fan of Jessica Ennis that when I was 70, she sent me a card, my birthday card. They are, it's Jessica Ennis. That's raising some questions in your mind, isn't it? <laughs> And at this, this latest uh, Olympics, uh, those young ladies uh, on their BMX bikes and skateboards, I'm thinking, wow, what courage that takes. And I do watch these athletes with a kind of wonder and amazement at what they're able to do and to achieve, which I suppose gives me a little insight to the crowd watching Jesus come down the mountain. And they are overwhelmed with wonder. Now, why? Well, I guess there was a radiance about Jesus because of being transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration. I suppose there was a kind of afterglow that still attended him, and the people could see this, and uh, they were just overwhelmed with what they could see in the face of Jesus. I wonder, do you ever think what you are going to see? Uh, sometimes you might think about it if you're going on holiday. I mean, if you were able to go, say, to Rome, you might think about, when I get to Rome, I'm going to see the Colosseum. Or if you're going to Paris, you might say, well, I'm going to see the Eiffel Tower. But what about in eternity? Do you ever think about what you are going to see? In Revelation 22 and verse 4, it says that we will see his face. That's going to be truly wonderful. I mean, sometimes it is just wonderful to see a face. Uh, we've seen recently some people uh, landing at Heathrow Airport and family are there to greet them and they haven't seen them perhaps 18 months or two years and then they see the face. And it's just wonderful as they recognize one another. And we're going to see Jesus. We're going to see his face. And we will be overwhelmed with wonder. Let me just take you a little deeper into this. I realized some years ago that I had a problem as I read about the risen Christ in the New Testament, because it seemed to me that the risen Christ was described in three completely different ways, and it puzzled me for a time. And these are the three ways that you can read of the risen Christ in the New Testament. Uh, for one thing, he's a risen man. And there's all sorts of resurrection appearances of Jesus that demonstrate that. You can think of Jesus walking down the road with two disciples on the way to Emmaus. And when eventually they realized who he was, uh, the hearts of those two disciples burned within them. I think of Jesus meeting his disciples on a beach and cooking breakfast for them. And you see him there again as a risen man. I think on another occasion of Jesus being on another mountain and appearing to a large crowd of people... And it says that some doubted. 
Can I just point out, by the way, that if you were writing some kind of made-up accounts of Jesus and the resurrection, and you wanted to prove the resurrection, you would never write down that some people saw Jesus risen from the dead and some of them doubted. But obviously there was something about Jesus that though it was Jesus, it was Jesus who really was risen from the dead, somehow there's something a bit different about Jesus. And it's interesting, if you read the resurrection accounts again and again, you'll find that when Jesus appeared as a risen man, at first someone didn't quite recognize who he was. And then the light dawns, as it were, and they realize this is Jesus risen from the dead. But then if you go into the book of Revelation... And to chapter 5 and verse 6, you see that Jesus is described in quite a different way, though, risen from the dead. So it says there in Revelation 5, verse 6, that I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne. And the context makes it clear that this lamb is, in fact, Jesus himself. And he appears as a slain lamb, meaning that he bears the marks of suffering and sacrifice in his body. And yet at the same time, we also read that he is standing in the center of the throne. And that indicates that this slain lamb is indeed the risen Christ, for he stands in the center of the throne. But then again, if you go to the first chapter of Revelation, here we read another description of the risen Christ, and this time we read of him as the Lord of all glory. And we see that the hair on his head was white like wool, and he's uh, as white as snow, and his eyes are like blazing fire. And we read that his face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. And this description of the Christ in glory is in fact the fullness of the vision that John had on the Mount of Transfiguration. And he got a kind of prefiguring of that. And it says on the Mount of Transfiguration that the disciples that were with Jesus at that time and saw him transfigured and transformed with his glory were in fact so frightened. And here in Revelation chapter 1, when the Lord of all glory appears again to John, we read that he falls at his feet as though dead because he's completely overwhelmed. So how are we going to see the risen Jesus? Are we going to see him as a risen man? Are we going to see him as a slain lamb? Or are we going to see him as the Lord of all glory? Well, surely all three must be true, that in some way we will see Jesus as all three of these things, because then we'll have a complete picture of Jesus, and we will be overwhelmed with glory and wonder ourselves. Very often, a sense of wonder comes because of what we see. And so sometimes it is seeing an Olympic athlete and we think, wow, that's just amazing, that's wonderful. Sometimes it's great architecture that we see that amazes us. Sometimes maybe it's something like a painting. I'm very fond of portrait paintings. And sometimes I look at the paintings in the National Gallery or the Portrait Gallery and I think, that's just amazing. It's something just wonderful about what the artist has been able to do. Sometimes it's a sight in the natural world. I remember years ago being on a ministry trip to Goa in India. Somebody has to do it. And uh, while I was there, we had a couple who took us out to the boats to show us the dolphins. They said, we've been out like this many times, we've actually never seen any dolphins, but uh, we're going to take you out and see what happens. And that day, the dolphins were there. And I'll never forget the way that they jumped out the sea and span in the air 
and it was just wonderful. My friends, think of what we are going to see. We are going to see his face. And part of the glory of the gospel is this, that we'll be overwhelmed with wonder. The next thing we need to pick out from this story is about coping with doubt. Because there are things that we will see then, but there are things now that we don't see. And that reflects uh, what we have here in this story of this man who brings his boy to Jesus and uh, he's not seen a miracle take place. Healing hasn't happened, although the disciples have been trying to heal this, this uh, boy. And in this story, there's an intercourse between Jesus and this uh, boy's father. And in verse 24, the, the man, the boy's father, suddenly cries out, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. And surely all of us can identify with that, that we may believe, we may have faith, but sometimes our faith is stronger, sometimes it's weaker. We believe, but there are circumstances of life that can knock our faith. And this man had a very sick and disabled son, and we can understand that knocking his faith. And very often we can think that when bad things happen, that is what's going to take our faith away. And yet, again and again, Christians face tragic circumstances and don't lose their faith. I read this recently from John Piper. You probably know me well enough to know now that if I preach a sermon, I always quote John Piper. Uh, but John Piper says this in a recent book, if I may bear witness from 50 years of ministering the Word of God to many suffering people, here is what I would say. For every one person whom I've seen forsaking the truth of God's all-pervasive providence because of suffering, or more often because of the suffering and, or death of a loved one, I have seen 10 others bear witness that the biblical truth of God's absolute sovereignty in and over their suffering and loss saved their faith. And I want to say yes to that. Now, I'm much the same age as John Piper. I've ministered for much the same time as John Piper. And I look back upon my time of ministering to people, and I, I think of a, a couple that I knew well uh, that uh, had uh, some children, and then rather later than expected, they had a, a, another baby. We weren't really expecting this particular baby, a lovely baby boy. And uh, obviously, he was such a, a favorite in the family, having come a bit later. And uh, he was a lovely blonde-haired baby boy, and he, he grew to the age of four, and then he had a terrible, terrible headache one day which landed him in Brighton Hospital, and a week later he was dead in Great Ormond Street Hospital in London. And you think, how are they going to cope with that? Well, it was such a loss, such grief, such distress and pain. And yet that couple have gone on with God, believing in the sovereign faithfulness of God, and today the husband uh, is a lay elder, to use that term, in a local church. And they have weathered the storm and come through with their belief in the sovereignty of God. Think of friends of ours for about 40 years, I suppose now, longer than that, I think. And uh, uh, some years ago, uh, this couple got two sons, and their younger son, uh, sorry, their older son died of cancer, brain tumor in his 40s. And you think, how are they going to cope with that? And yet, this couple 
have gone on faithfully serving God, serving the local church, believing in the sovereign providence of God. I think of uh, another couple, and uh, some years ago their son got married, and seven weeks after he was married, he had a motorbike accident that damaged him, uh, gave him uh, a damaged brain, and he's carried that and will carry it all his life. And you think, again, how is this couple going to cope with that? But they have, continuing to serve God, particularly to serve the needs of the poor. I've seen this again and again. Christians who face tragic circumstances, and yet their belief in the sovereignty of God has saved their faith over and through their suffering and loss. Who does lose their faith when bad things happen? I'll tell you who loses their faith. People who don't believe in God. Because you find that such people will say, if there's a God, why did this happen? But they don't even believe in God. And they complain about it and even get angry about it. Well, I do appreciate that there are circumstances that can strain faith. But people get worn down by difficult and tragic circumstances. So let me just give you a few headlines to help if in any way you're finding your faith under strain. They all begin with R. It goes like this. I'd say, first of all, retrieve the promises of God. And I very deliberately use the word retrieve because sometimes I think you've kind of got to dig the promises of God out. You've got to go to the Word of God and you've got to research it and you've got to find those promises and you've got to excavate them and then be able to apply them. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 17, we read, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. We might, own, we might have troubles at the moment, but they're only light troubles compared with the weight of glory which is to come. And we may have troubles at the moment uh, which are very real for us, but they're only momentary compared to the eternity of glory which is to come. We need to retrieve the promises of God. Then I would say we need to reflect if we're facing some tragic or difficult circumstance, uh, there's only three ways you can go with it. You can say it's satanic. Now, I suppose most people wouldn't go that way these days, though I was very interested to read this week of a guy who said when he was a young man, he can remember the day that President Kennedy was assassinated, and he said you had all these hard-bitten journalists saying, this is a satanic action, this is a devilish work, this is a demonic act that has taken place. People who wouldn't believe in that at all, and yet needing somehow to explain what had happened. So you can say, well, it's satanic. Or you can say it's happened simply because random events happen. I think there's no hope in that. If everything is just random, then really in the end you've got no hope. Or you can say that God is sovereign. That's the other way you can go. And I suppose when that happens, that most commonly people will turn to Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. You'll know this verse. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. Now I almost guarantee that, although you've just heard me read that, you didn't actually hear the way I read it. I almost guarantee that although it's not what I read, you would have heard in your mind, all things work together for good to those that love God and accord according to his purpose. That's the way it's so often quoted. The verse in the Greek text is somewhat ambiguous. 
And the NIV chooses, I believe, a better translation. I think the trouble with saying all things work together for good is it gives you an idea that all these kind of random events are somehow doing you good. And that's not really what the verse means. What the verse is saying is that in all things that happen to us, God works for good to those that love him and accord according to his purpose. So whatever happens, whatever takes place, whatever difficulties we may have to face, actually God is able to work through those difficulties and to bring good out of them. Then we need to recall, that's the third thing we need to do, your own experience of the faithfulness of God. Certainly in my life I've known times when I believe God has preserved me from death. He's proved to be faithful in my own experience. And I recall those experiences in difficult times. And then the fourth R will be read. Christians need to read some good books. Now, only because it's mentioned in the flyer that we had a couple of weeks ago, do I pick out one book as a recommendation. A lot of book people are finding this book, Gentle and Lowly, very helpful at the present time. Dane Ortland, you can get it online. It's a wonderful book. And if you're facing difficulties and stresses and strains in your life, read this book. It will do you good. And then, of course, there's always a place for crying to God in your weakness. I believe. Please help me overcome my unbelief. And then, lastly, what I want to pick up from this story is about prayer, because really it's only by prayer. We find that at the end of this particular story that Jesus has healed this boy. Uh, the crowds have gone, the disciples go indoors with Jesus, and at the end of the story, after Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out, this spirit out? And he, rep <coughs> he replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. Ah, that's the answer. Uh, the disciples, if they got round this boy and had actually prayed over this boy and prayed the right prayer, then the Spirit would have come out. The only problem with this is that Jesus didn't pray either. I don't know if you noticed that. But Jesus says this type only come out by prayer. But when Jesus deals with this boy, he doesn't pray. He simply gives a command and the Spirit comes out and the boy is healed. So you've got to explain that. And surely the way that we do explain it is that all that Jesus did was against a background of a life of prayer. Uh, I, I think my favorite verse, if I can have a favorite verse on this, concerning the prayer life of Jesus is in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 7. This verse is always meant a, a huge amount to me. Hebrews 5 and verse 7. And uh, this is what the writer says. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, so during his lifetime, what did Jesus do? He offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears. And that is saying something about the very nature of Christ's prayer, that Jesus was fervent and passionate in prayer. The prayer isn't just dribbling out some words in a rather casual fashion, but Jesus prayed with strong cries and tears. There was a passion and a devotion and a crying to God as Jesus prayed. And it's against that background of prayer that Jesus simply commands that this boy becomes well.
Nothing happens through prayer, yet everything happens through prayer, is what I'm convinced of. What do I mean when I say nothing happens through prayer? I say nothing happens through prayer because time and again, I've heard well-meaning people say that every prayer we pray is answered, but sometimes they're answered in a different way to what we expect. Can I say that is not biblical? The Bible tells us that there are prayers that don't get answered because there are conditions for prayer. And so if you go through the New Testament, you see that husbands need to be kind for their, to their wives or their prayers won't be answered. In the New Testament, motivation is important. Why do we pray for this particular thing? What's our motivation about it? What's the will of God in this particular area? Have we forgiven other people? Because if we don't forgive, then actually we're not going to get our prayers answered. And I'd even want to add to that laziness. I've had people say to me, John, would you pray that I might lose weight? No, I won't. Okay, there are other ways of losing weight, and I won't pray about it. All right. God doesn't answer every prayer. But let me say this, everything happens through prayer. And so it's well documented that whenever there's revival, there's always been praying Christians. And I think of the last time that there was anything like a true revival in this country in the Hebrides in the 1950s. And two ladies in their 80s, one blind and the other crippled with arthritis, were praying and God came by his spirit. And the church in the Hebrides was revived in a mighty way. For 24 years, I was an elder in the church in, in Brighton with Terry Virgo, who's the father figure of our New Frontiers family of churches. One of the things that marks out Terry's life most strongly is that he lives a life of prayer. And so as a church, we were caught up in his prayer life. We prayed. Did we see everything happen? No, not everything happened, but everything that we did see happen, I believe, happened through prayer. And so we were in a church that was growing. We were in a church that was able to establish a, a, an amazing new building. We were a church that were able to export leaders all over the world, quite literally, to plant, establish, and help lead churches. So my friends... Let me once again invite you to pray and to pray for Gateway Church. Pray this week for Gateway Church as the leaders are away at the end of this week. I'm just going to mention these things in passing, but they'll come up on the, on the screen because sometimes it can be, well, bless Gateway, bless the leaders. I, pr I pray for this church every day. There's not been a day since the end of 2015 when I haven't prayed for Gateway Church. And uh, this is what I regularly pray. I don't always pray exactly this every day, but there are five things that I particularly pray for. I pray for wisdom for the elders of this church because there are so many complex, difficult pastoral situations these days. I pray for wisdom. The second thing I pray for is the preaching, that God will anoint the preaching of God's Word in this church so that men and women may encounter the grace of God in Jesus Christ. I pray for growth. No, sorry, I pray for mission. I pray that this church will never be parochial, but will have in its heart and mind that there are other churches to be planted and other nations to be reached. And I pray for a missionary spirit in this church. I pray for growth, that we will grow in maturity and that we will grow in numbers so there will be an increasing number of praising people here in this community. And above all, I pray for the presence of God that we will encounter God as we come together as a local church. That people who come here might actually say, surely God is among you. And I pray for his presence only by prayer. 
Let me close by bringing you back to the fact that Jesus came down this mountain, walked straight into a crisis, but he's a man of action. People saw him and were overwhelmed with wonder. Let me tell you this, friends, the glory of the gospel is this, we are going to see him. One American author puts it like this, maybe that's what's waiting for us at the end of the journey, a majesty unimaginable until the very moment we find ourselves walking through the doors of it, what we, are, what we find ourselves gazing at in astonishment when God finally takes his hands off our eyes and says, look. And this morning, I'm reading that conscious, a name that a number of you will know, that Greg Haslam, friend of mine, great preacher, pastor, went to be with the Lord the other day. And I think now that God has taken his eyes, his hands off Greg's eyes and said to Greg, look. And in the Bible it's put like this in Revelation 1. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And then he placed his right hand upon me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. Now, look. I am alive forever and ever. And that will be you and me. We will look on the one who lives forever and we will be overcome with wonder. Yeah. Let's stand together, can we? <laughs> Father, we thank you that Jesus came down a mountain. People saw him and were overwhelmed with wonder a little foretaste of what we are going to see one day, that we will look on the risen Christ, that God will take his hands off our eyes and we will look and we will see the face of Jesus. Father, help us in the presence where there are things that we don't see. Lord, we want to see more healings and we want to see more growth and we want to see more mission yeah. and we want to see more powerful preaching of the word of God. And Father, we pray that where we are weak in faith, you will help us with our unbelief. And Father, we thank you that you are the sovereign God, that in all things you can work to bring good out of them for those that love you. And uh, Father, we ask that you make us faithful in prayer. Again, we pray for the leaders as they go away this weekend or next weekend. Lord, we pray that you will speak to them, work through them, for the good of this church and for the glory of your name. Yeah. Amen.